when I was excited about life, I didn't want to write at all. I've never written about being happy, never. I didn't want to. Besides, I don't think you can describe being happy. I've never had a long period of being happy. Do you think anybody has? I think I think you can be peaceful for quite a long time. But to be happy is, is different, isn't it? And that's a bit rare. I can't have feeling. But then altogether, I, I, I think, well, I think if I had to choose, I'd rather be happy than right. <laughs> if I had my life all over again and could choose. I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea. We also talk to two experts. Shivani Ramlochin and Elaine Savory. At the start of the episode, we heard a rare clip of Jean Rees herself from an interview for the Paris Review in 1979, the year she died. Okay, I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Jean Rees. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, tell us about Jean Rees. Jean Rees was born Ella Gwendolyn Rees Williams on the 24th of August, 1890, on the Caribbean island Dominica, to a Welsh father and a Dominican Creole mother whose family had been plantation owners on the island. She spent her formative years on Dominica, but was sent away to an all-girls school in Cambridge, England, when she was 16 where she felt and was made to feel like an outsider. After school, wanting to be an actress, she attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art for a couple of terms, but ended up leaving and becoming a chorus girl. She lived what many articles euphemistically call a bohemian life in London, Paris, and Vienna. She had several affairs and was married three times. Two of her husbands spent time in jail for quote-unquote currency irregularities and or fraud. She had two children with her first husband, one of whom died very young. In the 19-teens, she began writing, and in 1924 became tangled up with the writer Ford Maddox Ford, who was a sometime patron, sometime lover, along with his partner Stella Bowen. He recognized Reese's literary talent and wrote the preface to her first book, a short story collection called The Left Bank and Other Stories, published in 1927. And he also suggested that she change her name from Ella Williams to Jean Rees. In the next decade and a half, Rees published four novels to some acclaim. After the fourth of these, Good Morning Midnight, published in 1939, she all but disappeared from public life and was presumed dead 
until 1949, when she answered an advert placed in the New Statesman, shout out to Buccia Machetta, by Selma Vaz Diaz, who wanted to adapt Good Morning Midnight for the radio. Somehow, this encounter encouraged her to get back to writing, but it would take many more years before her next novel, Why It Took C, would be published. So I'm going to leave it to you, Alicia, to talk about that. After the success of Wide Sog SOC, she published several collections of short stories and found the sort of literary fame that had eluded her earlier in her life, becoming regarded by some as, quote, the best living English novelist. She struggled with depression and alcoholism, especially in her later life, and she lived for many years in poverty. She was awarded a CBE for her writing in 1979, and she died in Exeter on the 14th of May, 1979, at the age of 88. This episode's Cat Corner also has some fun facts. While she was living in Beckenham in England, this was in the late 1940s, she was living in kind of a dingy house, and her then-husband was kind of maybe in jail, but also maybe elsewhere at this time. She had three cats, and she ended up in Holloway Prison because of them. <laughs> Apparently, she threw a brick through a neighbor's window, but she might have also beaten him up. The accounts vary. Because she said that his dog killed two of her cats, and they were her only company at that point. So she had a short stay, as I said, in Holloway Prison for assault in the <laughs> hospital wing. In what may be a burgeoning theme for the second season of Literate, recalling how Chinua Cheve was compared to a cat, Jean Reese herself was also described in quite feline terms by her publisher, Diana Attil. She said, quote, Jean was always Jean, as a cat is always a cat, <laughs> a being with an essence too strong to be altered by anything but its own emotions, such as fear or anger. Whether or not you interpret that as being a <laughs> pejorative or a positive description, I think is up to you. Alrighty then. Alicia, what's the story behind Wide Sargasso Sea and what's it about? Jean Reese published Wide Sargasso Sea in 1966 at the age of 76. She hadn't published a book in 27 years and was living in relative obscurity and perhaps slum-like conditions in England. According to the memoir of her editor, Diana Adhill, the publishing house André Deutsch bought the option to see the script for this new book for a mere 25 pounds. Although her prior books had already made an impact, it was the success of Wide Sargasso Sea that at this point raised Reese's quality of life and has since established her place in literary history. The book itself takes place in Jamaica and Dominica, during the 1830s and 1840s. It's an imaginative prequel to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which by its end overlaps with that story significantly. It focuses on a character called Bertha in Jane Eyre, the first wife of Mr. Rochester, whom he had brought back from Jamaica and then imprisoned in an attic after she went mad. In Jane Eyre, Rochester and Jane are on the brink of marriage when the presence of this first wife is revealed, and it is only after she burns the house and falls to her death that Jane and Rochester can marry. But in White Sargasso's Sea, the Bertha character is very much given a life of her own. Beyond madness and violence, she's given a life that fleshes out her eventual transformation into a haunting presence. She's also given a different name, Antoinette, 
born Antoinette Causeway. The book imagines how Antoinette's madness may have come about from a traumatic past combined with the torments of a loveless marriage, not to mention her relocation away from the Caribbean's vivid beauty to England. It is neatly organized into three main sections. The first and last are narrated by Antoinette, and the second is primarily narrated by Rochester, who in this book goes unnamed. Wide Sargasso Sea offers a nuanced and perhaps even murky account of identity. There is an allure and danger to the confluences and churnings of race, class, culture, and gender in this book that may recall the physical Sargasso Sea to which the title alludes. It's a place of mixing currents in the North Atlantic, about which rumors arise of danger and trapped vessels. Jean Reese's novel pays particular attention to Antoinette's white Creole identity as it describes her childhood and young adult life within a Caribbean context marked by complex intersections of cultures and race from which neither Antoinette nor Rochester emerge unscathed. We're going to start off with an extended reflection on Wide Sargasso Sea by Shivani Ramlochan. She is a Trinidadian poet, book reviewer, blogger, and literary critic. In 2017, she published her first book of poems, Everyone Knows I Am a Haunting, with People Tree Press. And we're delighted to have her on the podcast. It's impossible for me to qualify my life as a writer or reader without invoking the importance of White Sargasso Sea. I first encountered Reese's last novel as a teenager in secondary school, where it was taught to me with all the literary thoroughness afforded in a Roman Catholic education. I consider this introduction to the work now as mordantly and deliciously ironic, learning about a wholly intemperate, madness-suffused, gothic, tropical, anti-romance in that most supposedly temperate and even-keeled of Caribbean institutions, the all-girls convent. Yet if the convent was not what it seemed, that definition applies urgently to Wide Sargasso Sea, an act of literary reclamation, a way to signify that the reader on the outside of empire Though she is a reader heavily curtailed by empire, and if not prescribed by it, then shaped in opposition to it, that she is paying attention. That that reader, who is myself, and so many other readers I have known and studied, is looking past the intended line of sight at Thornfield, which focuses on Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester, is looking above to the haunted gables where Bertha Mason has been forced to reside and asking, why have you been made to be here? In the novel, the white husband who is married into what he perceives as savagery is quick to other both Antoinette Causeway and the island that made her. White Sargasso Sea gives the last laugh to the island and to Antoinette. It proves that a place can armor itself against colonial attack and indolence, 
a place can cultivate a savage intuition of itself that chokes out even the mightiest of attempts to topple it. The crux of understanding human relationships to geography in Wide Sargasso Sea is not only in seeing the place as Rochester sees it. It involves spending time on the island, and then, in cardboard uncomfortable England, as Antoinette. Arguably, expositionally, Antoinette can show you more than Rochester ever could. How the young girl outsider struggles with placehood. How red and black ants, razor grass and snakes, rain that soaks to the skin. All of these are minor ills, better than the most ill fortune of knowing other people. White or not, people who belong to islands can comprehend this native terror. None of this should suggest that the novel is a perfect encompassing. There is much it alives, specifically in the relationship between the largely passively rendered black Caribbean voices and the more dominant white ones. I take this as a direct impetus to continue in the vein of Reese, to seek out and encourage work that exceeds even the novel's ambitions, to do the critical work that ensures none are underwritten, invisibilized, or consigned to rooms of silence, even or especially unconsciously. Waitsergasso C is one of the most important forces of my life. I carry it with me wherever I go. Since 16, I've been shaped and made by this haunting. Alicia, what was your experience reading this book? I enjoyed this book. I have enjoyed it before, and I enjoyed it again, which bespeaks Reese's accomplishment, I think, in writing it, because it's it's a sad story, actually. It's a story of decline and <laughs> madness and these things. How does she write about it in such an engaging way that's also nuanced and complicated and pleasurable still to read. That is something I take my hat off to. I mean, I just think that's such an accomplishment. And something about the confluences of the themes and the kind of language she uses results in that reading experience for me. And it's clever enough that it's enjoyable to read and reread. So my experience was positive. I totally agree. This is, I don't know what number of time I'm reading this novel. I've read it a few times before, and I was so struck by the mastery of the form of the writing in this novel. How Jean Reese has condensed everything. Everything is so concise. Like there is no word that is extraneous in this. It's like the anti-golden notebook in some way. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Doris Lessing, but you've become a counterpoint for us here. I was reading out passages out loud. I was making people listen to me while I was reading this because I was so struck by how brilliantly written this novel is. So let's just take the first few lines. They say when trouble comes, close ranks. And so the white people did. But we were not in their ranks. 
The Jamaican ladies had never approved of my mother, because she pretty like pretty self, Christophine said. She was my father's second wife, far too young for him, they thought, and worse still, a Martinique girl. When I asked her why so few people came to see us, she told me that the road from Spanish town to Culibri Estate, where we lived, was very bad, and that road repairing was now a thing of the past. My father, visitors, horses, feeling safe in bed, all belonged to the past. So these are just the first two paragraphs, which establish right off the bat this tense dynamic between Antoinette and the rest of the world, the rest of society, Antoinette and her family and her mother and the rest of the world. It establishes Christophine's character. It establishes the fact that things have changed since some points in the past and that she's lost her father. They're shunned. She doesn't feel safe in bed. There's this like tension there straight away from the beginning, all belong to the past. Then the next paragraph talks about Mr. Luttrell, a neighbor who was a plantation owner and after the Emancipation Act was waiting for compensation because the the British agreed to pay a certain price to those people who had enslaved others to compensate them for the loss of the labor, I guess. And then the next paragraph says, one calm evening, Mr. Luttrell shot his dog, swam out to sea and was gone for always. There's an ominous sense of growing disquiet, mm. of hopelessness, of loss, of racial dynamics, of oppression and subjugation, enslavement. All of this stuff is like in these paragraphs, condensed. One of the things I noticed is we don't get introduced to characters like, my mother was like this mm -hmm. and her name was this. You get introduced by people talking and you pick it up. You have to do that work to kind of follow the thread. Hmm. And as a result, it allows for multiple kinds of interpretations to be going off all the time. A little bit like poetry, the conciseness of Reese's writing. Words resonate because they kind of have space to. I mean, my book is only 120 pages long. It's really short and really dense and really resonant. I love your emphasis here. And I love that quality of her writing. You're especially right to highlight it, it seems to me, because this is genuinely Reese's product. At least if we trust Adhill's account, she said, I feel like a fraud when described as Reese's editor because in her writing, she was such a perfectionist that she needed no editing. Now that quote goes on to say, but she did need a nanny. <laughs> so there, there's also that interesting way in which this incredible writer wasn't as good as at maybe the practical <laughs> demands of life. But you're highlighting something that's, this is the product of Reese's work. It's not someone else's intervention. Yes. She is the artistic genius behind the conception, but also the editing and the refinement. The distillation. Yeah. There's a vividness to the language that's used in this book. And that comes through in so many ways. But one immediately pleasurable way is in the descriptions of color and place, the landscape. So much color in this book. Yeah. And those descriptions are mediated by the eye who's talking about them at different times. So in the center, when we have Mr. Rochester's perspective, he talks about how, this is a quote, everything is too much. I felt as I rode wearily after her, too much blue, too much purple, too much green, the flowers too red, the mountains too high, the hills too near, and the woman is a stranger. 
that's the end of the quote, but it's this observation of place that's interwoven with identity and relationships and all those dynamics are refracted through how he perceives one and the other, place and person, mm. reflecting back on the one who's perceiving. And that complex interplay that's also just enjoyable to read about. Too much blue, too much purple, super saturated world. Yes. <laughs> England can be, especially in the summer, very saturated with color. I don't think the England of Jane Eyre is very saturated with color. <laughs> no. Though. For me, it's quite monochromatic, except, and this is where I think there's an interesting intertextual connection, hmm. for the Red Room, where Jane has this nightmare feverish kind of experience that's I think in the Reed's house and it's terrifying and it becomes this really important almost gothic moment in the text and we find these red rooms you know Antoinette has a dream of being in a, a room with a red bed I think and red curtains and at the end when she is Bertha Mason when we are in the world of Jane Eyre, which is the cardboard world of Jane yes, Eyre. She yes. talks about it as like being cardboard because it's unreal. But I think it's also a cool little mm -hmm. shout out to the fact that we're in another book, you know, between cardboard covers. There's a red dress there. And that reminds Antoinette of her childhood, of her earlier years in Dominica and Jamaica. You know, I'm just thinking like how the colors work in this also links in this really complex way to its own kind of haunting of Jane Eyre, the text. Yeah, but a, a haunting that's more viscerally real. It's yes. the opposite of a haunting because it's not thinly colored. Which one becomes the haunting? In a way, England, the cardboard place, becomes the thinner, less vivified locale. And the mm. use of color here makes this almost more substantial, more real. So about the vividness of these descriptions, listen to this passage where she's talking about her garden at Culebri as she's growing up. Our garden was large and beautiful as that garden in the Bible. The tree of life grew there. But it had gone wild. The paths were overgrown and a smell of dead flowers mixed with the fresh living smell. And I'll skip a bit. Orchids flourished out of reach, or for some reason not to be touched. One was snaky looking, another like an octopus with long, thin brown tentacles bare of leaves hanging from a twisted root. Twice a year the octopus orchid flowered. Then not an inch of tentacles showed. It was a bell-shaped mass of white, mauve, deep purples, wonderful to see. The scent was very sweet and strong. I never went near it. Mm. I'm just amazed at the atmosphere and the tone being created in this passage where she's going between things that are beautiful and vivid and also slightly menacing. It's the Garden of Eden, but we know that a fall is coming to the Garden of Eden. And then there's the hint of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's where the snake is. And then there's the snaky orchid and the octopus orchid that smells really sweet, but you don't go near it. Yeah, the thing that's not to be touched, the forbidden fruit. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just that all of this is in this description of some trees and some flowers. Hmm. I really like what you had to say about perspective. Well, perspective and poetic resonance are intertwined even in the picking back up of the quote that I had read before you took us through that really beautiful passage. Initially, Rochester, or the unnamed Rochester character, 
seems to have an openness to place, it seems to me, mm-hmm. and to the other characters, and to be trying to figure out who they are. And unlike Antoinette's stepfather, Mr. Mason, who's always sort of giving cardboard cutout depictions of the natives, he sort of depicts everyone as childlike and innocent and then is shocked when his house gets burnt. And it's like he can't view people as whole people Mm-mm. across cultural and racial bounds. No, he's very paternalistic. Incredibly paternalistic. Of everyone, really, of women too. I think to Jean Reese's credit, the Mr. Rochester character comes in and he's open to seeing good and bad qualities of the characters around him. But he can't determine what's true and what's not of the stories that he hears about Antoinette and her family and the madness in it and whether he's been duped into marrying her, whether he hasn't. Is he a victim? Is she trying to poison him later when she's actually procured a love potion, Yes, which does make him vomit? So there, <laughs> uh, there's some sort of evidentiary support for the sense of having been poisoned, yeah, even if that yeah. wasn't her aim. So. He is portrayed as this grappling consciousness, trying to pull together a world that makes sense out of so much intensity and an overabundance of stories and perceptions. But by the time we get to the end of part two, he uses some of the same language that the prior quote I'd read out used, but now with slightly more decided perspective and more negative perspective. I'll just read that out for the way in which I think it reflects that combination of perspective and poetics that you were just alluding to. I hated the mountains and the hills, he says, the rivers and the rain. I hated the sunsets of whatever color. I hated its beauty and its magic and the secret I would never know. I hated its indifference and the cruelty, which was part of its loveliness. Above all, I hated her, speaking of Antoinette. For she belonged to the magic and the loveliness. She had left me thirsty and all my life would be thirst and longing for what I had lost before I found it. That's the end of the quote. And that also seems maybe to reflect something of the quote you just read of Mm. the fall that he's gone through. He's lost something. He's partaken of the (laughs) forbidden fruit and an old self is lost. Yeah. I mean, one of his great conundrums in this is a question of knowledge and of the truth and Mm. trying to ascertain what it is. And he vacillates between trusting Antoinette and loving her and being warm and open to her and suspecting her because he doesn't know her. You know, he's come Mm. from England, the second son who stood to inherit nothing. He's come to marry a rich heiress. He marries her after being in the Caribbean for a month three weeks of which he was sick with some sort of fever. So he is in this kind of disempowered position, and yet he is not. And yet he is the white British man who comes in and gets control of all of her money. She is basically disinherited because Richard Mason, her stepbrother, just doesn't negotiate a settlement for her. So His consciousness is one where he's desperate to find out what the truth of something is, but he doesn't seem to doubt himself in any existential manner, I think. He seems to kind of project his doubts into the world and things become menacing to him. But he doesn't think that he might be wrong in some way. That kind of arrogance of his perspective really came through to me a whole lot. That it's like, these people are duping me. How dare they? Hmm. Oh, I like this. Now let me do this. And now let me 
sleep with my wife and then let me reject her and then let me sleep with the servant while my wife can hear and Mm. then, oh, no, no, she's crazy. She's going crazy. Look at how dark her eyes are. I found it pretty claustrophobic and I really did not enjoy reading Rochester's perspective because it just makes me frustrated. Anything he doesn't understand, he views with suspicion. When he sleeps with her servant in the room that shares a wall so that she can hear and then later identifies that as his motive so that she'll hear. To me, that's one of the most acute moments that crystallize his choice or his indulgence in the worst parts of his character. Yes. And then his yes. giving way to wickedness. <laughs> um, and I agree. And there are other moments that are subtler, but that is just, and that's where she breaks in her identity as well. And in her, she goes over the precipice, uh, Antoinette does, to madness. And so there are other moments similar to that in small ways, but that's a clear divide of he's chosen one path for himself. He's chosen to believe himself to be a certain kind of person and above certain kind of constraints of decency, at least in relation to her or other categories of people. I think that the subtext to all of this is something about power and something about race and the history of the islands that Reese is talking about, really. The way that Rochester talks about Antoinette and talks about the landscape and the Black people whom he encounters is such a colonizing thing. He's such a colonizer, Mm -hmm. basically. He's like the ur-colonizer. He comes in wanting to extract wealth from the colonies, and he gets it. He exploits other people. He denigrates their traditions and their ways of being and seeing the world. He dominates them, and then he's also really suspicious of them and fears them at the same time. He takes what he can get, and then he accuses Antoinette of madness and locks her away, takes away her freedom, enslaves her, essentially. Hmm. I do think, though, in, in drawing this comparison, I don't want to downplay the fact that Antoinette is white Hmm. herself. She is the descendant of plantation owners, people who have enslaved others. And much as she feels more like she belongs in that kind of landscape, she's complicit in these structures as well. Her wealth comes from the subjugation of others. So I just want to say that that complicates that easy comparison that I seem to be drawing earlier. That complicating aspect is connected to both the strengths of this book and perhaps also its weaknesses. In the Cambridge introduction to Jean Reese, Elaine Savory, who we're going to hear from later, yes, yes, <laughs> notes that Reese wisely avoided writing a whole novel in the voice of the victim figure Antoinette. That's a quote from her, but she highlights how by putting Rochester's narrative at the center of the novel. Reese, and then this is a quote again, created a complex portrait of the kind of severely emotionally damaged upper-class Englishman who destroys a trusting young Caribbean woman, end quote. And this is partly an autobiographical or a biographical reflection that Elaine Savory is making because Reese herself had gone through these kinds of relations to English men. And Reese herself was a white writer of Caribbean descent, you know, from a Creole mother, was it? Yes, 
So on the one hand, there's this complexity of not just making it an easy book where there's a victim and an oppressor because yes. of the reasons that Elaine Savory is pointing out, but also what you were just saying about Antoinette not herself being simply a victim no. in her social space. So that complexity lends to the strengths of the book, I think. But on the other hand, to go back to Elaine Savory now in her book, Jean Reese, she puts a fine point on what you were saying as well. And that is, and this is a quote again, Reese certainly reflects the prejudices of her time, race, and class, but she also marks a pathway for white writers for whom too much liberal guilt and refusal to offend is as dangerous as racism itself. At least Reese found an honesty which opens dialogue. She was in many ways ahead of her time in that willingness to deal with race. Her failings, that is, her prejudices, capacity for patronage, and limitations of vision are, I would suggest, not more than most writers possess when writing across the borders of their own identity and social location. But it is imperative that critics, especially white critics, recognize and identify those failings, not glossing over Antoinette's ambivalent position, nor the power structure which enables her to lack the, quote, spunks, which Christophine, as mm -hmm. a poor black woman and slave, has had to find in herself to survive, end quote. Yes. I think that's really well put. I also like what she said insofar as it opens up a different way of reading this perspective, which is to say there are gaps in the story, as Shivani pointed out mm. so beautifully. The voices of Black people and the stories of Black people are marginalized in this. There are characters, but they are servants to the white people, and they are servants to the white people's stories as well. And I think there are gaps because those voices are not represented here. However, I don't know if Jean Rhys could have represented them hmm. or could have done so with, uh, with in in integrity and without appropriating those stories, in fact. So I think that there's something about what she's getting to here which gets to the heart of whiteness, of white settler colonial identity. And Antoinette's perspective is so keyed into this, her feeling like she doesn't belong anywhere she goes, basically. Her being taunted by, called a white cockroach, by the black people in her community, for example. And there's something about that, about the not belonging and desperately wanting to belong. And she's so sensitive to people laughing at her. Did you notice that? Mm. It stuck out to me again and again when somebody is laughing. Laughter in this novel is doing interesting things. Mm. Basically, her both only feeling that she belongs in these two houses and these particular islands, but also not feeling like she belongs there and constantly feeling watched and suspected and ridiculed there there's something about these questions of belonging of and of power that Reese is getting at that I think are really canny explorations of white settler colonial identity and consciousness absolutely one of Savory's points in the Cambridge introduction as well is that the wide Sargasso Sea I'll just quote her, is a writing back to Jane Eyre done before such intertextuality became identified as a widespread post-colonial response to colonial literary canons. And that's the end of the quote. But this kind of intertextuality where she's telling not just the same story from another perspective, but actually changing focus so that 
the character called Bertha now gains her own name and her own life and her own background and place where her identity makes a little more sense, at least. Although, as you point out, she is also sort of displaced in her own Jamaican and Dominican. And then she also has this Martinique connection, but background and context. So that move toward intertextuality is enmeshed with Jean Reese's deeper project of highlighting power, the power over narratives, the power over which point of view counts, and the power struggles in this novel, but also between the novels, how this novel mm. functions in relation to Jane Eyre, in relation to the English literary canon, and which stories about the Caribbean get told, yeah. circulate in cultural memory and shape cultural memory, and whose cultural yeah. memory. <laughs> and in this novel, that plays out partly by the staging of different perspectives and point of views. And as they each come to grapple with, which narrative will they trust and will they offer? about this place and each other. And I think that if there are gaps, and there are gaps, I think there's a, a self-consciousness about this text that invites further responses, further stories to be told because of that awareness, I think, that you've been highlighting really usefully for us, for other stories to be told by the people who are left out of this book. Initially, when Wide Sargasso Sea was published in the 60s, the feminist movement was really picking up speed. And then we have the post-colonial movement. And these things shaped its, its successful reception, its prominent reception. But yeah. also, these things have shaped how this book is read and the narratives told about it. And even its prominence, like Savory highlights, you know, there's so much great literature coming out of the Caribbean. And this book gets a disproportionate amount of critical attention, which is, on the one hand, there's a benefit to that. It's good that this book gets the attention that it does. But on the other hand, what about these other wonderful Caribbean writers? And one of the things I loved about Shivani's contribution is that she points towards some of those gaps that we've been discussing. And hopefully the historical progression of this book's reception and the critical conversation around it will shift to highlight different aspects of this book and its relation mm. to what it represents, but also the world it's received into. We are delighted to interview Elaine Savory, who is an associate professor of literature at the New School in New York and has published prodigiously on Reese. Most recently, she co-edited the anthology Wide Sargasso Sea at 50. Elaine, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. When did you first read Jean Reese and what made you want to study her work? I was thinking about the answer to this because I can't remember precisely. But I know I was too young to be interested in 1966 when uh, White Sargasso came out, and I hadn't heard of her in any other way. I probably started to read her in the 1970s when um, I was becoming interested in women and gender issues in the Caribbean. But I didn't want to study her at first. My focus was on Caribbean women writers of color, 
And in 1990, I co-edited the first feminist collection on Caribbean women writers with Carol Brooks Davis. But I was asked to play Jimmy's in Barbados on stage in uh, 1982. And I was very conflicted about this. But then I couldn't do it because I went to Nigeria for a year on a visiting professorship. So it just put her in my head and in a conflicted space, not in an easy space. Then I was asked to write a biocritical essay on her, which I also wasn't all that keen to do. But as a result of these two things, I finally got really deeply interested. So it was a journey. It was a journey, Therese. That's fascinating. And since you've introduced this idea of a journey, we wanted to start with asking you a question as well about one of your earlier publications. It was a book entitled Jean Reese, which emphasizes that Reese is, in your words, best understood within the richly diverse tradition of Caribbean literature and culture. So why was that claim debated at the time? For a couple of reasons. One, she had been claimed as the finest English novelist, you know, a kind of passing remark which reverberated because she was claimed. Um, English literary world. She was published in Britain. She lived in Britain. She was claimed as British. And her being white was part of that because Britain has still not come to terms with its role in creating white supremacy and still not come to terms with race within Britain. And it certainly was not true when she was living there. But the irony is that she deeply resented England. She called it England. Her father was Welsh. And it's always English, English, England, that she, how she represents her hostility and resistance to the place that had made her feel alien and inadequate. And she was very poor there for a long time and not noticed, even though her work was very fine before White's Agassiz Sea. She really didn't get a lot of press outside the small world of, you know, highly literary people appreciating her. But as well, first of all, then I got asked to write this study in the series for Cambridge, African and Caribbean Writers. Um, and so I said to the series editor, okay, this is going to be a tough sell, you know. And he said, well, I think it needs to be done and, and, and you should do it. And I thought about it. Carol Phillips, who's a leading Caribbean novelist, said to me a while ago, well, I think it was when I was doing an interview with him, that she was like anybody else on the planet. It's obvious when you think about it shaped completely by the first 16 years of her life. You can change after that. You can go on your journey after that. But those first 16 years, put the basis in. And her first 16 years were in Dominica. She's not British. She's a colonial white Dominican, which is a whole other set of things. So I realized this as I began to do the work for the book, Reading her, I went to Tulsa and did work in the um, archives and I was reading her notebooks and her letters and thinking about her texts in a whole other ways. Went to Dominica to try to understand where she grew up, met one surviving member of her extended family who'd known her. So though I missed her lifetime, I was able to understand, especially because I lived so long in Barbados, I was able to understand how alienated she did feel. And so although she's white, and her, her mother's family was Scottish and slaveholding ancestors on that side in Dominica. She was fully Caribbean, because the Caribbean is a multiracial space, obviously. Also, she's very much part of the debate in the Caribbean about race and culture. Emma Brathwaite, the, um, the genius Barbadian poet who just died a little while ago, said famously 
1974 that whites, West Indians, couldn't really claim any spiritual space on this side of the Sargasso Sea, as he put it. Because at the end of, of White Sargasso Sea, the leaping of Antoinette to join Tia was problematic for him. But the very fact that it was problematic for him and he responded to that means that she's part of the family. I mean, so many Caribbean writers have written poems to her, have thought about her. And so the issues, yes, but they're issues of, as part of the Caribbean extended family, as it were, debating race, which is such a critical and, and tragic and violent part of Caribbean history that it affects everybody who lives there. So that's what shapes her. So yes, I, I came to understand fundamentally, but you asked why was there resistance? The resistance didn't come from the Caribbean side. The resistance came from the English side or, or from critics who don't know the Caribbean and had already claimed her in their own ways, and were a little bit reluctant to think, oh, did I miss something? But it wasn't a huge pushback, just that it hadn't been, the case hadn't been made that way before. Thank you. And to go in with this theme of kind of a journey in your own work on Reese, within the last year, you co-edited Wide Sargasso Sea at 50 with Erica Johnson, and you contributed to it. So this book explores the novel's ongoing importance and appeal to a wide spectrum of readers. Can you suggest some reasons why it has had this appeal, why it has this appeal, not just in literary circles, but in the fine arts as well and beyond? Yes. Well, first of all, it wasn't written for 1960s. She was working on this novel for decades. Um, there's even an earlier novel that she apparently lost the manuscript of, which was a precursor. So this was a long time coming. And the fact that it appeared finally when she was 76 means that it was you know, half a lifetime's work. However, it hit its moment, and we all know what, how important timing is in, with writing. It hit a moment in the 60s. Decolonization was happening all over the British Empire. The feminist movement was gaining ground. People were studying modernism. It was far enough away from modernism itself that modernism was becoming a focus of study for some scholars. And the novel hit those three currents in the receptive audience that was educated enough to be able to identify the certain things in it. On the popular level, it is an excellently told story of the abuse of a young woman. And part of that, it hit the new feminist audience for fiction in the 60s. It is also very visual. Two people in my life who'd been my former students who were fine artists. One is a book cover designer. She had to design the cover for the collection. And the other is a fashion designer. And she did her first fashion collection inspired by White Sargassus. And so both of them, one is interviewed in the collection, the other wrote an essay about how she got to the fashion line from the book. And then an art historian uh, who'd inherited a dress of Reese's, been given it by one of Reese's friends, talks about you know, how Reese's work fits into the sense of art history. That text, slim as it is, economic as it is, you know, and let us not forget that when she was nearly finished with the book, her publisher was begging for the book. And Reese's response was, there's a comma in the wrong place somewhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> this book was so finished. And that is part of why it appeals to so many people. There's so much that is inserted into this text, which you unpack along the thread of your own apprehension. 
And there are so many layers of apprehension packed into it that I don't think we're done with how many different kinds of readers or scholars can be attracted to this text. Speaking of not being done with responding to the text, how have your responses, or rather, have your responses to Wadsworth SOC changed over time? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I still think Good Morning Midnight is her finest piece of work, but I have come a long way towards better appreciating Wadsworth SOC. Now, I never thought it was an inadequate book. I just thought it wasn't as good as Good Morning Midnight. And interestingly, part of that is the most obvious tactic that it takes, which is the writing back to Jane Eyre, which we would now call a decolonizing move, not so much a post-colonizing move, it was a decolonizing move. The essay I've just, that was in the collection, goes back to that, thinking about the unnamed husband and thinking about how she nails, through Rochester, she nails that white male supremacist sexual behavior that had damaged her in her own life, personally. And she just understood it as that. At best, literature can deliver to us a changing of ourselves because it doesn't do what academic work does. Academic work does a very important job, but it can never do the changing of the hearts. It changes the minds, if you're lucky. And sometimes it's so clever that it doesn't change many minds because it can't reach a lot. And you're both very much aware of that. So it has its place, it has its importance. But what we must not do with Reese is to imagine that she was not intellectually brilliant. We know that she actually hid a lot. The, the scholars that are trying to figure out what was in her library, for example, from the hints in the work, know that she read a lot more than she let on in print. But it's not only what she read, it's the acuteness, the acuity of her perceptions, the sheer quality of her being able to bring these huge things in and shift away from anything that clouded the purity of the story. And that is a very great literary gift to have, and very few writers actually have it in the way she did. So to answer your question, I've come to appreciate as a writer myself, you know, I've been a poet for a long time, and I'm shifting much more into the writing side. I'm coming to appreciate her from that side more and more and more. So you may have given us a bit of a hint to your answer here already, but we like to conclude our interviews by asking whether the book we're discussing, in this case, Wide Sargasso Sea, is, in your view, one of the books of the 20th century. And, and we'd like to know how you believe it relates to the rest of Reese's body of work. Okay, well, I'll deal with the second first. It is the most Caribbean, although Voyage in the Dark is half written in the Caribbean, so literally half the text is Memories of the Caribbean. It's still set in London. And so it is the most Caribbean-centered of the stories. And for that reason, I think it's, it has a special importance. The Caribbean is a very rich place. I have found the Caribbean to be a superb place for creative and intellectual and all other work. I mean, the, the number of brilliant people who come out of this very tiny population, globally considered, is amazing. But the Caribbean gets tacked on to things. In Britain, it gets tacked on to something general called Black British. 
in America gets tacked on to Latin America or African America. And I'm not diminishing the importance of those connections. Of course, they are there and they're important. But there is something about the Caribbean in and of itself that can teach the world so much. So, yes, she has encapsulated in her work and in this text particularly an entire history of what the Caribbean inherited through a gendered perspective delivers to us a sense of how difficult it is to live with that legacy. And what is, in Antoinette's case, she cannot. She is forced to fail to live with a legacy. She is forced to die in the end, to give up her life. But in the moment of, of the core of it, opens up questions about whiteness, questions about transatlantic slavery, questions about the legacy to white people, which is a really important thing to do. So that change and resistance is at the core of it. The fact that it's a white girl who becomes the victim, but is also the privileged heir to plantocracy. What plantocracy has done to all of us, none of us are, are escape its influence to this day. In other words, I think this text is not only brilliantly written and a brilliant novel in and of itself. It's just brilliantly written. But it is also a very important text in the same way that Things Fall Apart is a very important text. Bride Price is a very important text because it brings us to a consciousness that we're not going to get to on our own easily because it's devastating. Would this be on your list then of the books <laughs> of the 20th century? Absolutely. Well, that's a very definitive and clear answer, very well backed up. Elaine, thank you so much. Your answers have been edifying and enlarging of our perspectives. Thank you. appreciate it. Take care. So, Erica, what do you think? Is Wide Sargasso Sea one of the books of the 20th century? I don't want to answer this. I don't know. I don't know what I think about this one, Alicia, because hmm. I really enjoy this book. I think it is beautifully written. I think it's masterful. But I don't know if I can extract it. Maybe I don't have to extract it from its history of like canonization on book lists everywhere, post-colonial pioneering text, writing back. Like, this is the book. This is the book that people use. This is the book that people teach. This is the book that I've taught in, like, introduction to post-colonial literature <laughs> courses, you know? And so I find it hard to encounter it outside of that history. And I don't know why I want mm. to, but I kind of do. I want to be like, is this on its own terms great? But, you know, maybe I'll change that. Maybe I'll say yes. Its influence on the literary canon alone, I think, makes a very strong case for its inclusion on this kind of list. The fact that after Wild Sargasso Sea, people cannot read Jane Eyre the same way because of its existence. The fact that she kind of intervened in the English literary canon in this way. She writes this book around 150 years after the original Jane Eyre and changes literary history and our conversations around Jane Eyre in ways that are irrevocable and lasting, which I think is fascinating. 
Also, the fact that this was written over so much time. She wrote this over decades, so it kind of straddles. It's it's out of time and it's in time. It's like she was a, a modernist author who then published this book in the 1960s, and it was so very much of its time in the 1960s, the way that it resonated in culture, picked up on all those different cultural movements, as you were mentioning, post-colonialism, feminism, but it's also of an earlier time, so it's kind of spans certain parts of the 20th century and styles of writing and ways of seeing the world in interesting ways. So I guess I'd say yes, but there is a part of me that sort of wants to be like, mm, I'm not sure, because I want mm. to try and extract it from the history of its take-up and try and sort of say, well, in and of itself, these are 120 pages. Should this be on the list? So that is my rambling answer. What do you think? I don't have a lot to add to what you've said, frankly. I do agree significantly with your points. I would say it is one of the books of the century, and my reasons are very much what you're nervous about for its influence and its reception in, I suppose, literary critical discussions, also for its reception beyond the Caribbean, in the U.S., in metropolitan communities, where it was received partly as an English novel because Reese wrote it from England, but where it's also resisted that reading or been taken up by, by some critics, as Elaine Savory mentioned, she herself promoted as a Caribbean text that has to be understood in relation to that context. And so in that respect, I think it does some interesting work culturally and the engagement with Jane Eyre is clever. It has a lasting impact on how we read Jane Eyre and how we read this book and how cultures are thought about as interconnected. I mean, England and Englishness, as it's represented in Jane Eyre, is now thought about slightly differently because the Bertha character isn't just a specter from Caribbean plantation work that's hiding in an attic. She has become foregrounded and complicated and questioned. And so the relations that England and Englishness have or have had historically to colonial activities are highlighted in that process. And so that cultural work interests me. And that is a big part of why I would say, yes, it is one of the books of the century. But I, I really appreciate your reservation about, but on its own terms, is it? And I'm not sure I would say yes, but I can't see it apart from that exactly. cultural context. I don't think the thing in itself can exist without those horizons. Exactly. And that is partly the work that Reese does because she doesn't want it to be a text that can be read in isolation. It's obviously shaped feminist criticism. The Mad Woman in the Attic, the woman writer in the 19th century literary imagination is, you know, iconic. Gilbert and Gubar. Yep. And it shaped post-colonial discourse. And, you know, sometimes these discourses have offered readings that have minimized complexities and have been counterproductive. But those conversations exist and they shape the world that we're in now. They shape the way that world is understood and narrated, to go back to a theme in this book itself. And so to grapple with contemporary discussions about literature, but also about identity and race, entails grappling with these ideas that Reese contributed to from living in squalor in a corner of England and, and grappling with her own history, but also fictional worlds, the world of Jane Eyre and 
a wider world far beyond England. So that is an achievement of the book and of the author that I think put it on that list for me. Before we close the book on Wide Sog SOC, we'd like to thank Shivani Ramlochan and Elaine Savory for talking to us for this episode. All original music was once again made by me. Thank you, Erica. I love it. <laughs> Every week. On the next episode in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. Want to read along? Please do. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter on at literatepodcast or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it. And also check out our list on bookshop.org, which is a great and convenient way to order the books that we're reading from independent bookstores. But however you get your books, please support your local library. And independent bookshop. <laughs> <laughs>